Lord, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you that you are a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. We thank you for your word, even for uh, a book like Amos that we maybe are less familiar with, and yet we know that it is sufficient because it is your word, and so help us to rejoice in that. We also just want to pray again for uh, baby Elsie. Thank you so much for your providence and your sovereign hand thus far in her life. We pray that you would continue to give wisdom to the doctors and grace to their family as uh, they face the surgery this week. We thank you for your faithfulness to us as your people. We pray that you encourage us today in Christ's name. Amen. There's uh, an old story that some of you may have heard before. Uh, Sometimes these old stories, you don't know if they're apocryphal or not anymore because they've been repeated so many times. But there's an old story where uh, a captain of a ship looked into a dark night and saw a light in the distance. Immediately, he told his signalman to send a message, alter your course 10 degrees south. He promptly received a reply, alter your course 10 degrees north. The furious captain sent out another message, alter your course 10 degrees south. I am a captain. Soon another reply was received, alter your course 10 degrees north. I am seaman third class Jones. The captain sent a final message, alter your course 10 degrees south, I am a battleship. The reply was, alter your course 10 degrees north, I am a lighthouse. (laughs) Human pride is responsible for more destruction and more chaos than it is possible for us to measure. If you could measure all of the destruction, all of the loss of life, all of the chaos in the 6,000 years uh, since the creation of the world, it would be uh, unfathomable. There's a story told about a clever salesman who closed hundreds of sales with this line, let me show you something several of your neighbors said you couldn't afford. But pride can cause more destruction than this. Yes, it can cause you to buy a vacuum cleaner that you don't need. But pride can cause much more destruction than this. In today's passage, the Lord says very directly and to the point, I abhor the pride of Jacob. It's hard to find a stronger word in Scripture to describe something that the Lord hates. Jacob's pride will bring about his destruction. Let's go ahead and read this passage today. We're going to be in Amos chapter 6, verses 8 through 14. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob. I hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And if ten men remain in in one house... They shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house, and shall say to him who's in the innermost parts of the house, Is there still anyone with you? He shall say, No. And he shall say, Silence, we must not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. 
you who rejoice at Lodabar, who say, Have we not by our own strength captured Carnaim for ourselves? For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Lebo Hamath to the brook of Arabah. We're going to look at this passage today, really in just two simple sections. God hates proud men and he judges proud men. We read in our opening verse of the text today, verse 8, the Lord has sworn by himself, I abhor the pride of Jacob and I hate his strongholds. God abhors pride. Two things are certain. It is difficult to find a sin that is more ingrained in every molecule of your body and every strand of your DNA than pride. And it is equally difficult to find a sin that God despises more than pride, which means we're kind of in trouble. Some people do say that pride is the root sin, that if you were to uh, look at any sin that you could commit and you were to whittle it down to its most basic foundation, that it would be pride at the core, that every other sin that we sin stems from pride. And this certainly could be true, but if it's not true, it's at least very, 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 very close to the truth. Pride is a major cause of a multitude of our sins. What is truly alarming, though, and amazing, though, is not the presence of pride in our lives. And I say that's not alarming because, I mean, it is alarming, but we know the Bible tells us this, and so we're kind of prepared for that. What truly is alarming, is our lack of engaging the threat. Our passivity, our yielding to it, our our permitting of it to just continue on as you were, and to just let it go unchecked, and to accept it, which is kind of odd, and we've observed this before, because I would say that there are probably few sins that we hate in other people more than pride but simultaneously coddle and nourish in our own lives. Kind of an odd relationship there that we have to this particular sin. How many of us fight our own pride with everything in us or how much of us just yield to it and just let it take control, let it take charge? Pride says, I'm in the driver's seat today, and you say, okay, I'll chill out in the back seat. You just take me wherever you want to go. The Bible is, of course, chock full of passages that address this particular sin. You have James 4, 6, of course, where it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You have Isaiah 2 and verse 11, where we have this word haughty or this word proud. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord will be exalted. You see the direction? God is taking man and he's doing this and he's taking himself and he's doing this. We also have Job 40 in verse 11. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. You have Isaiah 13, 11. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Psalm 31, 23. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in what? 
pride. You have Psalm 94 and verse 2. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay the proud what they deserve. And then Proverbs 16, 18. Probably many of us know this one. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Getting rid of pride, I think, uh, is, is, is analogous to peeling an onion, right? Because every time you think that you have conquered pride in your own heart, you realize there's another layer underneath that. And it actually goes a little deeper than I thought, and it wraps itself around me uh, even more than I realize. In fact, many times what we do is we begin to grow in our sanctification. We sometimes recognize that some of the things that we did that were good on the outside actually were motivated by pride. Right? We, we may serve someone. We may serve our spouse. We may serve someone in the church. We may do something kind. We may get involved in a community service project of some sort. And then all of a sudden we realize, wait a second, I was doing that for my own glory. I was doing that so that I would be uh, praised by men. There's pride wrapped up in crevices that we did not know existed. The Puritan Thomas Manton refers to our pride as a garland that you put on your head, uh, almost as an award that you give to yourself. And he says this about pride. He says, uh, he says, the garland we put on our own heads soon withers. It's, it's, it's no more. So serious is the Lord in his uh, hatred of this particular sin that we see in verse 8 that he swears that he is going to deal with this sin, but he says something somewhat unique. This is mentioned a few other times in Scripture, but it says that he swears by himself. I mean, this is like, you don't, you don't need this to know the Lord's going to act. I mean, the Lord can simply say, I'm going to do this. But when he says, I swear by myself, It's kind of like a promise on top of a promise on top of a promise on top of a promise. The Lord is going to do this. We're reminded of of, uh, in Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6 talks a little bit about this aspect of the Lord swearing by himself. And the example in Hebrews 6 is uh, with Abraham. And when um, he walks through, you know, the pieces. And the Lord's making this promise to Abraham. The Lord swears by himself. Hebrews 6 picks that up. And in Hebrews 6, we read that when men want to guarantee something, if you want to make a promise, if you want to make a commitment, Hebrews 6 says that men swear by something greater than themselves. I swear by this particular thing that I will do this. But Hebrews 6 also notes that since there is nothing greater than God, what does God have to swear by? God can't say, I swear by the sun, the moon, and the stars that I'm going to do this. (laughs) Uh, They're less than him. I swear by the universe. No, that's less than him. He swears by himself. There's nothing greater. God God can't find, I'm less than this. He's greater than everything. He looks down on everything. He looks down on every human being. He looks down on every uh, created thing. He looks down on every law of science, every law of logic, Every uh, uh, animal, every molecule, he's above all of it. And so when the Lord needs to swear in this kind of a way, to swear that he's going to do something, he swears by himself. 
Furthermore, Hebrews 6 also tells us that it's impossible for God to lie, meaning that here in Amos 6, God will fulfill his word. It's not a maybe, it's not a might, it's not we'll wait around and see, it's he will do this. And it says specifically, what is he promising he's going to do? Because he hates Jacob's pride, he hates the pride of, of, of Israel, it says, I'm going to deliver up the city and everything in it. Now, we've already seen before, as we've been working through the book of Amos, that this is making reference to 722 BC, the fall of Israel, the Assyrian invasion, and so on and so forth. So we know that this does come true. Why such, though, why such a severe response to what seems to many of us like such a minor sin? Because of this, it's not a minor sin. And because pride, in its most basic form, says essentially this. If you strip it down out of everything, and you just say, what is pride at its most basic level? Pride is saying this, I do not need God. Now, it may manifest itself in you wanting to get attention for this good deed that you did, okay? And that's pride, and that says I don't need God because I need the worship for me, not God. Um, And it can manifest itself in a thousand other ways, but pride at its core is saying, I don't need God. And what does God think about that? He hates that. He hates that. And God will see to it that the pride of men is abased. And that is what we see in the rest of this passage, verses 9 through 14. Verse 8 tells us, essentially, that God hates the pride of men. And then the rest of this passage today is working through how he will judge men for this particular sin. Verses 9 through 10, the next two verses is a little bit challenging to understand. The passage says this, If ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house, and they shall say to him who's in the innermost parts of the house, Is there still anyone with you? He shall say no, and he shall say, Silence, we must not mention the name of the Lord. So what exactly is going on here? Well, One of the themes that you may have noticed in the book of Amos that we have seen repeatedly over and over and over again is the impossibility of what? Escape. Right? I mean, we've seen time and time again that the Lord has said, there's no escape, there's no escape, there's no escape. One of the ways we saw this early on in Amos was when he says the horns of the altar will be cut off. Because you remember people used to flee to the altar. The last possible refuge. You can't kill me while I'm hanging on to the altar. I'm safe here. And the Lord said, I'm going to cut those off. Meaning, not even there will be a refuge for you. And we see that theme played out in this particular passage here. Basically, this is what's happening. God's destruction of Israel, is going to be so thorough that even if 10 men were able to band together in someone's house, everyone's dead and there's 10 men left banding together in someone's house, even those people will perish too. And then even if on top of that, there's someone left over and he walks into this particular house to gather up all the bones and to bury these dead people, And then if he is in that house and he sees someone still in that house, there's one solitary person in the house alive, the person will say, please don't mention the name of the Lord. What's going on here? 
And this is, again, part of the uh, debate about what exactly is going on in this particular passage, and I think it's probably best to understand it this way. These lone survivors recognize that this is God's divine hand. And they look, and they see a couple of other people wandering around, and they simply say, just, you know, almost like a knock on wood kind of thing, right? Don't say God's name. Don't even draw his attention to the fact that we are here. Just be quiet, please. It's been too much judgment on us. The point is to uh, reinforce the recurring themes, one being that there will be no possible escape. No matter where you hide, God's wrath and judgment will find you out. This, of course, can be seen also in verse 11, where where he says, Behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. This is a a literary technique where you talk about the the great and the little, the big and the minor, whatever. It's a technique to describe the two extremes and everything in between. So he's not saying, I'm going to strike down the big houses and the little houses, but I'm going to leave the medium houses. It's a technique to say, From the great to the small, they're all going to be wiped out. This happens, of course, again in 722 BC with the Assyrian invasion. And then he gives this little interesting observation in verse 12, trying to prod Israel. You know, can I get some kind of response out of these people? Is there anything left in these people recognizing the seriousness of their sin? Are are they going to acknowledge anything? And so he simply says in verse 12, do horses run on rocks? There's one plow there with oxen, but you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. Some translations actually might say with the word there, does one plow there with oxen? Uh, it might say the sea. Does anyone have that in there in your Bible where it says sea? I think the ESV has it in a footnote um, uh, on that. Either one, it makes the same uh, it has the same meaning. Basically, what Amos is doing is using silly examples to get the Israelites to say, well, of course not. Of course not, Amos. What are you thinking? And then he turns that on them and to say, well, you need to say, of course not to this too. Uh, it's basically setting a trap for his listeners in a sense. And here's, here's the silly examples. It would be unimaginable to see horses run on rocks. Horses don't run on rocks. They're going to trip. They're, they're going to slip. They're going to hurt themselves. And so they don't run on these big rocks, okay? And uh, it would likewise be unimaginable to see oxen plow on those same rocks. And if your particular translation, depending on how we exactly translate this word, if it says the sea, then it would also be just as unimaginable to see oxen plowing the sea. What what good is that going to do? And finally, it's just as unimaginable, look at the last part of verse 12, to see Israel turn justice into poison and righteousness into wormwood. You you see see what he's saying here? Horses, do they run on rocks? No, Amos, what are you talking about? Okay, 
do you plow the sea with oxen? <laughs> Amos, no, what? Of course not. Well, why do you turn justice into poison? Oh, yeah, about that. <laughs> In other words, you can abuse the laws of nature and everybody sees the absurdity of it. Yeah, that would be absurd. It would be absurd for, for horses to do this. It would be absurd for gravity to reverse itself. It would be absurd for, for this to happen or that to happen. Yeah, the, the laws of nature, they're, they're grounded, they're founded. They're, that would be absurd to see those things uh, turned on end. But reverse the laws of morality and nobody bats an eye. Nobody, who cares? There's injustice being done. Who, who, why would you care about that? We have the same response to injustice, to sin, to unrighteousness, as we ought to have to gravity being turned upside down. Oh, that, why? Hello? Wake up, everybody. What's going on here? And so Amos is unpacking this. He accuses them again of their pride in verse 13, which this time he accuses them of their military pride. He talks about these two uh, cities that they conquered, and they're rejoicing in this as if they had been the ones to conquer these cities. You who rejoice in Lodabar who say, have we not by our own strength captured uh, Carnaim for ourselves? They fail to recognize that God is the one who delivers nations. God is the one who delivers kingdoms. So it doesn't make sense to, that they boast in these feats as if they accomplish it. And by the way, the same can be said of us. We need to be very cautious about boasting in our own feats. You say, wow, the Lord has given me this great skill as uh, an artist. Look at me. No, look at the Lord who's gifted me in this way to be able to do this. The Lord has, uh, I, I have the ability to uh, excel at my job in this particular way. Well, praise the Lord for that. The Lord's grace is the one. Don't you be taking the credit for that. Don't you be rejoicing in yourself in that. The, the, you, don't, you realize in a moment, the Lord is... Holding together, Colossians 1, we read that Jesus sustains all things, that he holds together the very fabric of the universe, the very molecules and the atoms and the electrons and the protons and all that stuff. He holds together. So your skill at this job or this hobby or this activity is not your skill. It's the Lord's. He gave it to you. And so let this verse be a reminder to us of that. God is the one who delivers nations and kingdoms. He's the one who gives the victory. The victory is, belongs to the Lord. So it makes no sense that Israel would boast in it as if they were the ones to accomplish this. And so the Lord promises that he will do something about this. He says in verse 14, For behold, this is the therefore, your pride, you've done this, you've done that, this, 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 this. 
Therefore, now this. I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you. From Lebo Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. Their boasting, Israel's boasting, is cut short because God is doing what he said he would do in Isaiah 2.11. Remember, we looked at that verse a little bit earlier. God will base the pride of men. He will take it down. They were oppressors before, and now they are being oppressed, not by people, but by God himself. So the question then is where do we go from here? I wanted to do something and, and draw a line in the sand. I, I, the message today might be a little bit lopsided because the body of the message uh, is a little bit shorter, and I wanted to have a little bit of an extended conclusion here to maybe put some pieces together because I want us to be looking at the book of Amos as a whole, And I want us to understand something, I want to make something clear to us that maybe has not been totally made clear yet, but I I want to make it clear at this point. Because we read a passage like this today, and we see the pride of men, and we see God's promise to destroy them, and some, some of us may be here in Amos, and I don't know how many messages this has been in it, but we're in Amos 6, and we've had a handful of, of messages already. And some of us may be here at this point in Amos saying, can we just get our heads above water for a second? <laughs> Judgment, wrath, anger, total destruction, no one's left behind, again and again, piled on, piled on, piled on, piled on, piled on. And it may be at this point that some of us are saying, we might as well just throw the towel in because this is not good. <laughs> what are we going to do? Amos is speaking to Israelites who hate God. These are, on the whole, God's people only in pretense. Amos is speaking, God is speaking to Israel through Amos to unregenerate people. They're mostly unbelievers. They had been, they have the external form of worship, but the inside is dead. And so judgment awaits them. So let's 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 make let's um, put one line in the sand. Let's let's put one anchor down. If you are an unbeliever here, listening to this, listening online, listening anywhere, if you're an unbeliever, God's wrath awaits you in full, in a place called hell for eternity. If you are an unbeliever, I hope that you read Amos and you quake in your boots but that it doesn't end there, that you repent and believe on Christ. The book of Amos is a book that spends no small amount of time teasing out the topic of divine judgment 
in fastidious detail. Could have just said God's going to judge us, but that's a lot of stuff. But if you are in Christ, okay, if you are someone who is in Christ, I want to read something that I hope will help to realign your perspective in the book of Amos, okay? We, we have seen a cup of wrath being dumped out on Israel in full. And, and the fact that he's been teasing out that there's not going to be any place to hide. If you hide here, God will find you. If you hide there, God will find you. If I hide here. Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, worship him. Everything that you see in the book of Amos, every crumb of the wrath of God was poured out in that cup on Christ. And now you can walk free. That's what the gospel message is. What else could we do but fall on our faces and worship him? Now this brings to our attention a particular question in light of the gospel. And that question is this. Why preach on Amos then? If this is God's wrath, and God's wrath has been appeased in Christ, and we as believers will not face divine wrath, we will face eternity in heaven with our Lord, then why in the world are we quote-unquote wasting our time in Amos? We're not wasting our time. That was in quotes, okay? We're not. (laughs) But that may appear to be the case. What is the point of reading, studying, and preaching this book? Some Christians may wonder whether our time is better spent elsewhere. Now, there are several answers to this question. But the first answer to this question is 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, that says, All Scripture is profitable in making us complete Christians. Isn't that what that passage says? It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for training in righteousness, da, 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 that you may be complete. Okay? So this is a, a theme that I've rehearsed many times, but it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. Understand that. We don't want to just pick and choose what appeals to us, but we are going to do the whole thing. And even if we don't know what the prophet of Amos is, P-R-O-F-I-T. We don't know what the prophet of Amos is. It doesn't mean it doesn't have prophet. Amos is profitable somewhere in the 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 paradigm of helping us shore up something in us. We may not know what it is because God's word works in mysterious ways, but it is responsible for something. The New Testament reminds us of the profitability of the Old Testament. 
So that's first. That's first base. You have to say, I don't know what the prophet is. If you don't know what the prophet is, you have to say, okay, I don't know what it is, but I know that it is, even though I don't know what it is. I know that it is. Second, we would be wise to recognize that we don't assume every person who walks through these doors every week is a believer in Christ. Okay? So there is prophet in the book of Amos to, we might say, the unbeliever. I want to read to you, this is a lengthier quote from Spurgeon, um, but it's always profitable to read lengthy Spurgeon quotes, so we're going to read this one, and because it is a little bit lengthier and I got to figure out where I am and click and all that stuff, if you guys in the back could just click through this for me and that way I can just focus on reading it. So kind of pay attention to to what he's saying here. There must be, dear friends, a probing of men's hearts with the law before we can rightly bring them to the healing of the gospel. Old Robbie Flockhart's simile was a good one. He said, you may take a piece of silk thread and try to sew with it as long as you like, but you will get nothing, you will do nothing with it alone. You want a sharp, piercing needle to go first, and that will draw the silken thread after it. The needle of the law prepares the way for the thread of the gospel. There must be birth pangs or there will be no child born. The old-fashioned grace of repentance is not to be dispensed with. There must be sorrow for sin. There must be a broken and contrite heart. This God will not despise. But a conversion which does not produce this result, God will not accept as genuine. So we shall still continue to preach the law... We shall thunder out the terrors of the Lord. We shall not be fashionable and popular and prophesy smooth things, lest our labor should be declared to have been in vain when the Lord shall come. I charge all brethren who are anxious for the true conversion of sinners to be sometimes a little backward in dealing out comfort to them. Wait till you see that it is really needed. Wait till you perceive that there is a wound before you apply the healing balm. Until people are willing to confess their sins, you have no ground upon which you can comfort them. It is the man who confesseth and forsaketh them who shall have mercy. Christ is a sinner's savior. And if a man is not a sinner, Christ has no salvation for him. Until he will take the sinner's place and frankly own his guilt, what is the use of preaching to him? Remember Christ's own words, they that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. There are portions of Scripture that will wound you, and there are portions of Scripture that will heal you. You need them both. Don't dispense with either. Now, the modern tendency, the modern tendency is to dispense with the wounds. But in the example here that Spurgeon used, that's like trying to sew with no needle. How how do I push the thread through this thing? I can't do it. And of course, you know that this is profitable in Scripture, but you also know this is profitable in our own discipling one another. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Physicians sometimes wound us in order to heal us. 
And we see that same pattern in Scripture. And so, with this in mind, if you are here today and you are not a believer in Christ, I hope, legitimately, that the book of Amos terrifies you. I hope that it's wounding you. I hope that you feel the guilt of your sin and that you feel the guilt enough to come to Christ and get mercy from him. I'm not saying we want to wound you for the, because we love wounding people. We love that because it brings the healing that comes afterwards. And that's what we want people to go through. I hope that you don't remain terrified, but that you find the peace, the joy, the contentment, the rest that is freely offered in Christ. So, so far we've seen two things. Say, what in the, why Amos? Well, first, we know it's profitable, according to 2 Timothy. Even if we don't know the reason, we know it is. Second, one way that it's profitable is it's profitable in the life of the unbeliever. To wound them so that they will come to Christ. Third, is there any profit to us as Christians? Is there anything that you as a believer in Christ can glean from this book? And I would say that there is, uh, that there is. And one of those things is this. Third, we as Christians need constant reminders to not slouch back into our former ways. We saw this earlier in the nine o'clock service, where Joel Beakey was talking about this, about someone who's backsliding. We need reminders not to do that. If you are a believer in Christ, then Ephesians 4 is apropos. Ephesians 4, 20 through 24. But that is not the way that you learn Christ, assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him as the truth as is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to what? Your former manner of life. And is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We know according to Romans 8 that there is no condemnation for the believer in Christ. But the admonition is not to creep back into your former manner of life. You as a believer, Paul deals with this head-on um, should we sin that grace may abound? And he says, by no means. And so as believers, we've been rescued from the punishment of our own sins. God has given to us a new heart, one that is alive and not dead. And yet we sometimes look back at the former manner of life. We look back at the sewage and the, the sludge. And for whatever reason... There's something that we find appealing somewhere in there. And so we want to go back to it from time to time. There's value in Amos to connect that sludge with God's wrath and hatred and anger. God hates this. Why would I? There's this draw. I need to go back to, I remember the days when, wait a second, God. God pours out his wrath on this. He hates this. I don't want to have anything to do with this again. It's a reminder for us as believers. Romans 6 reminds us of the same thing. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make, it, make you obey its passions. Don't let sin reign. 
It's, it's your former manner of life. Now you're a Christian. Seen from this perspective then, the book of Amos functions as a warning to believers to never again cultivate the corrupt values of the world which earn God's wrath. Amos, in one sense, is telling you about your old stomping grounds. Don't go back there again. You remember when you used to do this? You remember when you used to do this? And by the way, God judges people for that. Yeah, I don't want to go back there ever again. Thus, we can conclude here that it is unwise for us to say, well, I've been forgiven, so there's no need anymore to think about these depressing portions of Scripture. Let's move on to the positive. Let's focus on just the positive things. I remember Joe Osteen said something along those lines one time. He was asked, it might have been... um, was it his Larry King interview at that one time? I don't, I don't remember which, but he was asked, you know, some people are concerned that you, you know, don't preach on, and, and he said something to this effect. Well, I just, I feel God's gifted me to just kind of be the positive encourager, kind of, I just give people the encouraging parts of Scripture. You want me to translate that for you? Let me translate what that means. Here's what that means. I know better than God. All of this is profitable. Maybe even the parts you don't like more so than everything else because you need those ones. <laughs> Paul argues that we should pursue holiness because we've been redeemed. 1 Corinthians six twenty: For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You know, sometimes, sometimes the thinking is that the gospel, just preach the gospel, but don't preach about holiness, that the gospel and holiness are separate entities. They're put together right here in 1 Corinthians 6.20. Gospel, bought with a price. Obedience, glorify God in your body, brought together. Because of this, you can do this. Actually, you're enabled to do it because of the gospel where you couldn't do it before. What Amos then does is he forces us to look at our former manner of life, to be disgusted by it, and to resolve never to go back there again. Considering today's emphasis on pride, not only should the pride of others disgust us, but our own pride should disgust us as well. You should walk away from this passage today marveling at God's redemptive grace in saving you and pleading with the Lord to grow you in holiness so you despise your own pride more and more. Part of the deal is with pride, we have to get rid of it, but part of the deal is we have to hate it too. We have to do both. And sometimes we cherish it. Lord, help me to hate this particular sin in me. Uh... Fourth, a fourth reason why Amos has value is you need to know that there are still consequences to falling back into your former manner of life. Yes, there is no condemnation for you, but pride can and does have destructive results in the here and now. David's life is an example of this. David's redeemed. David's justified. David is one who... Uh, is in heaven, okay? 
But suddenly, the whole Bathsheba thing, and from that point forward in his life, it was a train wreck. That was not God withdrawing his saving grace from David, but it was a result of the pride of his own life. You are justified. There is no condemnation for you. But pride will destroy your marriage here and now. Pride will provoke your children to wrath in the here and now. Pride will cause your neighbors to not trust you and a thousand other things. And so there's value in Amos because you can say sin is connected to or consequences are connected to sin. Yes, I'm justified, but let's do this God's way instead of my way. I want to convince you through Scripture, not through my own efforts, I want to convince you through Scripture to abandon your pride and embrace humility. We all need this. And with those brief remarks, I want to conclude with three points of application, okay? Number one, repent of your pride that causes you to trust yourself and not God. I think this is really the main takeaway from this passage. God abhors pride, okay? We can at least say, if there's any way in which we apply this, it is to abandon our own pride. Now, but this... This application, admittedly, is very broad because pride has, in, uh, has, has infiltrated our lives in thousands of ways. And so how can we be more specific than this? Well, it's really hard to explore all the ways in which we can be proud, but there's maybe a brief list of some, some thoughts here. We can demonstrate pride in our social status, our wealth, our popularity, our looks, our skills, our jobs, our work. Many example are, are many of us, for example, will hope, as we mentioned earlier, that people might notice and praise us. These kinds of things is where we're cultivating pride in our own hearts. One could demonstrate pride also by not repenting for their sins, okay? Many times it's just one particular sin. Some people will say, oh, I've repented of this, and I've repented of that, and I've repented of this, and I've repented, and I've repented of the 99%, but just don't, you're not repenting if it's the whole thing. If there is one thing that you're holding on to, then you're still unrepentant, and that's pride. You could demonstrate pride by not apologizing or forgiving someone. Perhaps you've wronged your spouse or a relative or a friend or a coworker, but you're too proud to acknowledge you did wrong. What does I am sorry, will you forgive me mean? It means, if it means nothing else, it means I did something wrong. This is why we've kind of truncated this today, and it's, I'm sorry. It's okay. That's not a real trans that's not a forgiveness transaction. Forgiveness is I'm sorry I did wrong. Will you forgive me for the wrong that I did to you? Yes, I forgive you for the wrong that you've done. That takes you have, that costs you your pride to do that. 
Um, you could demonstrate pride by not getting, say, counseling if you're in a situation where you don't know what to do. I need some help. I need maybe not necessarily counseling, but it's discipleship. I don't know what to do in this situation, but I'm too proud to admit my shortcoming here to ask someone for help. That could be pride. You could demonstrate pride if you learn from the Bible that your theological convictions in a certain area are wrong, but you don't want to change it. Read my Bible and, ah, I believe this for a long time, but I can't argue with this scripture. But I'm too proud to acknowledge that I'm wrong and that I'm going to change here. Of course, it's hard for me to mention on a sermon on pride, not to mention at least in passing, where this has been plastered on every building in our culture and every email from every company that you get, the terms gay pride, putting these things together. Uh, This perhaps may even be doubly sinful because you're taking pride in something that is inherently sinful to start with. And so we could demonstrate about a million different ways in which we can have pride. The point is that we repent from this. The second application is to rejoice in the profitability of the entire Bible to make us complete Christians. Rejoice in Amos. Yes, we are to love Amos 6, 8. I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds and will deliver up the city and all that's in it. That's God demonstrating his character. And so we worship him because of that. And then the third application is to repent and believe on Christ for the salvation of your soul. This is targeted, of course, to those who may not know Christ. That I said earlier, I hope that Amos smites you. It is to repent and believe on Christ. If anyone is in that situation today, I know I or anyone from the church would be happy to talk to you about the gospel and the hope available in it. There is hope. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. The gospel is sufficient. Christ forgives us all of the wrath that has been poured out on Israel and Amos. That and more is taken upon Christ himself. And Christ lets us have his forgiveness when we simply repent and believe in the gospel. There's joy in that. There's worship in that. Thank you, God, for your grace to us. We thank you for the gospel and for this message in this book. Help us to take to heart these things that we've studied. Pray that you'd help us to repent, to look to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.